Hello, and welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with writers that have earned their independence. This week, we talked to Luke Temmerman. He's a veteran biotech journalist, and he decided back in 2015 to launch his own subscription-based newsletter. It's called The Timmerman Report, and it's one of the top newsletters in the biotech space. Um, he's focused on new companies that are creating new drugs based on like genomics and CRISPR and all the sort of crazy, really hard technical problems and science problems that you have to solve in order to create uh, new drugs. And so in this episode of the Substack podcast, we basically start out by talking about the big picture of the biotech industry. That goes on for about 20, 25 minutes. And then at the 25 minute mark, we start focusing on his career in journalism, uh, why he did a subscription-based publication, how he made it work. We learn a lot of interesting things. Like when he first started, he only had like, you know, small email list, like 14,000 followers on Twitter. Um, but he was able to grow it up into this very big thing that's that works and sustains him um, for a living. So a lot of really practical lessons on the second half of the podcast. So without further ado, Luke Timmerman. Luke Timmerman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you've been covering biotech since like 2001, I read. And, and since then, you've become, you know, one of the, if not the top reporter in the space. And I'm curious to hear from your perspective, like, what is the zoomed out kind of big picture story of the biotech world today? Oh, uh, boy, it's uh, so much bigger and more vibrant now than when I started um, however many years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there, there are something like 500 or so public companies on the NASDAQ now seeking to apply a lot of basic science from biology labs uh, in the form of products. Usually, and most of them are drug developers, but it also includes uh, diagnostics. Uh, you could even file medical devices under this header. Uh, there's a whole lot of innovation coming through that um, people can invest in during the development stages and, and is, you know, actually becoming products in many cases that help people. Yeah. Yeah. What are the kind of big tech waves that you've seen where there's new innovations that all kind of stem from some fundamental discovery? Well, uh, one of the big ones has, uh, is the genomics wave. So this comes from the Human Genome Project. Everybody's heard of that. Uh, from the 1990s, this was this big federally funded uh, project uh, to sequence all the DNA in a human genome. And there was a competition there with the private sector that captivated a lot of imaginations. And for about the first, say, 10 years... Uh, in the wake of the, the genome being sequenced, we didn't see a lot in the way of payoffs for human health. That being, you know, new targeted drugs that focus on, say, a certain mutation that people have with a rare disease. Right. But now, and, and that really was how the, the genome project was sold to the public, and it got a lot of people very excited. It, and it's taken lo a long time to uh, reap some of the benefits, but we are now beginning to see uh, some of those benefits come through. And, and they may not be uh, widely shared with everyone in society because, you know, by definition, if, if you have cystic fibrosis, you have a rare disease. You may not know anybody in your family or, or your extended circle of friends who has it, but 
if you do, you know that some very impactful therapies have come along based on this deeper understanding of what's going wrong at the genetic and molecular level. Yeah. And what is like just the basics of how those new uh, drugs, I guess, is that the best word for it? Drug? <laughs> I don't even yeah. really necessarily know. Okay. Good. How, 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 what is like the basis of how they act um, given our new knowledge of genetics? Well, they work in a variety of ways. So um, you hear about gene therapies, uh, and these are often um, given as, um, <laughs> I don't know how technical you want to get in some of the science here, but um, little viruses are actually modified to carry um, functioning copies of genes that in some cases are missing or malfunctioning for certain people with diseases. So you can get an, an intravenous infusion with billions or even a trillion of these little viruses that shuttle those uh, genes inside cells so that they can start making the right gene. Um, that's one classic form of gene therapy. Um, another application that you hear about are, are cell therapies. So this, is, uh, this has been very exciting in cancer where um, you can take blood um, from people with certain kinds of leukemia or lymphomas, uh, withdraw it, isolate certain uh, white blood cells, and then use this kind of gene therapy to reprogram uh, certain kinds of white blood cells to recognize and attack hallmark you know, markers on cancer cells. And then these kind of these kind of souped up cells get reinfused back into the patient. And we're seeing like remarkable uh, remission rates in very, very sick patients, sometimes upwards of 80, 90 percent of people with uh, who are on death's door um, are, are going into being snapped into remission by these kind of, you know, reprogrammed T cells. So this is the kind of stuff that is um, is exciting. A lot of people um, in biotech and, and in the stock market. Um, and, and it's taken, like I said earlier, you know, 10, 15 years to like work through some of the technical challenges uh, to, to make this real. But it sounds like a lot of a lot of it is really starting to come online, like already. And, and does the way it work like is this sort of the same as CRISPR, where it actually edits the gene, or is it? Is there a distinction between the stuff that you've been referring to just now and CRISPR, which you know we hear about all the time? With like, genetic editing is on the horizon now. Yeah, it's a good question. CRISPR is sort of a variation on the theme um, with gene editing. Um, so part of what's exciting about CRISPR as a platform enabling technology is that it provides the ability to cut out. Uh, problematic sections from genes um, and and also in some cases to insert um, a gene that you want um, so it can go either way uh, now th this is still very early I don't think as of today's recording that anybody has yet entered a clinical trial with a CRISPR modified gene therapy um, there 
this is still going to take a few more years. But it's very exciting scientifically because it's cheap and fast, and any graduate student can learn how to do it uh, in a short amount of time. And it works across multiple, multiple species, mice, rats. Uh, you know, it, it, you can go into plants and, and do lots of interesting experiments very quickly. Um, so it... it um, I think that is a, a very interesting story to watch, but it might be <laughs> 10 years or more before we really see some of the benefits that, that I was referring to earlier. Gotcha. So what do you think? I mean, like 20, 30 years from now, what what do you think life will be like or how could it be changed because of everything that you know you study and report on? Well, I, I think we're going to have a lot more really effective treatments for small populations of people. People with rare diseases who currently have no options for treatment are going to have more options. Um, and they're going to be, I think, cancer 20, 30 years from now will largely be a chronic disease, um, not something that uh, is associated with you know, a short-term death sentence like it it often is today. That's very exciting. I, I think uh, some of the chronic diseases, um, like neuros neuroscience, so Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, mental illnesses, these are uh, going to be harder, and they're still going to be um, plaguing us, I think, 20, 30 years from now, for the very simple reason that... Um, Often, there's not just one or two faulty genes responsible. Mm. There's, there's, there's often, I mean, maybe a dozen or a hundred genes that are sort of a little bit tweaked, a little bit off in how they express. So if you can imagine like a graphic equalizer on your stereo, that's a little bit like the picture you should have. So there's not one thing that can be focused on. Plus, there's all these environmental interactions uh, that... Uh, we, we, we are just not even beginning to understand, you know, what, what effect does uh, doing crossword puzzles have on elderly people, say? Right. Uh, does, does, does that help them uh, uh, stave off Alzheimer's for a few more years? We don't really know. Diet, exercise, all that kind of stuff needs to be factored in. Yeah. I was reading, actually, that I, I guess there's some study that someone someone thinks that sleep may actually have a huge impact on the it's, the headline was something like when you sleep your brain clears the alzheimer's out of your brain or something like that yeah i i think right now it's just a really interesting time to do a lot of these basic science experiments because coming back to what i said earlier the tools are are so much better like right now i mean you can sequence an entire genome uh, for you know let's say a thousand fifteen hundred dollars and you can crunch the numbers with software you know for another it, that'll take some months um but you could enroll hundreds of patients if you're a big pharma company and you've got real money right, <laughs> you, right. you can you can you know a thousand per patient get a hundred patients in there this is actually feasible um, and and actually compare what's what's going on there at the molecular level. Run a few different kinds of experiments. Like what happens when people are are getting a good night's sleep, eight hours, reasonably uninterrupted, versus something less than that. Um, you, you know, you can actually run these kind of experiments now, which is so cool. Yeah. Well, and one one interesting thing you mentioned is how with big pharma companies you can run these kind of experiments because you have real money. And I, I've kind of related 
it a little bit to um, what I'm more used to, which is like internet startups in terms of you take a lot of risk up front, you develop something, and then you kind of prove that it works, and you raise venture capital, and at some point it becomes a mature business. Um, but it's very different for the kind of companies that you report on. I'm curious, like... What, is, what are the basic phases that biotech companies go through and like how much money does it take or time does it take to get to the point where you have something that people are using in the world, like not just in trials? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so biotech companies tend to have a much longer gestation period. <laughs> um, yeah. they, they will take 10 or 15 years pretty frequently to mature into a business that actually has a product. Yeah, so, I think Facebook so, is not yet 15 years old. <laughs> yeah, Facebook uh, probably started making a lot of money in, in its first couple years I, I would think I, I don't really know but it, yeah. that doesn't that doesn't happen in biotech um, so now that it can vary so it depends on how far along uh, a technology has been developed in the academic lab setting but typically you'll, you'll hear about something at a, a great research institution it'll get published in the scientific literature maybe the New York Times will write a story about say something exciting in CRISPR and and then that's when venture capitalists get involved and they have to do tons and tons of de-risking for, like I say, the 10 to 15 years. Um, I, I think the latest uh, studies on how much it costs to develop a new drug put the figure at somewhere around $2 billion. Wow. Um, now that factors in all the failures that get funded along the way and all of the uh, opportunity cost, right? When you're putting a bet on something for 10 years, there's a lot of opportunity cost if that yeah. thing fails. So, uh, you know, but in terms of actual hard money, when something really works, you know, it's pr pretty common to be 10 years, 250, $300 million. So, yeah, it's it's not for the faint of heart. These, yeah. these entrepreneurs have to, you know, go to uh, venture capitalists repeatedly. They have to go to uh, the uh, stock market to do an IPO and then kind of explain themselves repeatedly. Keep um, making steady progress through phase one, two and three. Um, and and uh, it's uh, it's kind of the ultimate uh, risk reward proposition you know you can you can spend all that time and money and and fall flat and that happens a lot um, but when they hit they they tend to really hit big you I mean you spend a ton of time talking to people that are doing this every day I mean ha have you ever you know been in the moment with someone who recently kind of realized that the thing they'd been working on for 10 years was not going to pan out oh yeah and that um that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> that, I can imagine. That's, that's hard on people. Um, it takes uh, a certain amount of resilience. You know, there are a lot of people in biotech, scientifically trained people who have never been a part of a single successful drug. Wow. <laughs> um, and um, they just need to kind of pick themselves up and dust themselves off repeatedly. Uh, How do they do that? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of scientists they come up through academic research centers and they understand that most experiments are going to fail, and 
what really matters is you know your ability to kind of recognize that and and move on quickly come up uh, pursue the next idea so like the really successful people are are pretty resilient yeah um yeah, I, you know, in a way, like tech entrepreneurs have to be that way too. I mean, you know, they lots of startup ideas um, fall flat, and it's it's you have to iterate, 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 right? Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I definitely see some similarities. Like, I, I ran a company for two years that ended up not working out, and that was hard. That was really hard. But I can't imagine. I mean, we we had in the hundreds of thousands of dollars of funding, and. Very small. T- it just it's it's really hard for me to fathom like the the difference in scale, I guess, of time and money. Well, you do definitely see people who um, <laughs> they beat their heads against the wall for a long time, and then at the end they just say, "You know what? I'm, I'm going to become a wildlife photographer." <laughs> right. I mean, twenty it years sense. of science was enough. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. One one thing also I wanted to to ask about was. How, you know, you go through all this risk, it, there's, there's such a high risk of failure, you know, it costs a lot of money. On, on the other side, you've got to make a lot of money to make all that back, right? Um, and this is why there's, you know, a lot of companies that charge really high prices for their drugs. And that's something that has adverse implications if, if it's taken too far for society, right? Like a huge issue in the upcoming election, I mean, the Democrat party of the policy agenda is... Uh, to try and work on drug prices. That's like a common theme in any political campaign. I'm curious what your take on this is because you see these companies so much more up close than than really anyone else does. Yeah, so th- you're right. This is the, the number one issue facing the industry. Um, I think there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who are frustrated with high drug prices. Um, and, and there's urgency to do something, but what that something is, um, it is up for a lot of debate. Right. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of excesses. Um, and you see a lot of these things reported on, like Martin Shkreli, for instance, was the yeah. poster boy for Pharma Greed. Uh, yeah, Pharma Bro. You, yeah, yeah. You take this old drug that's generic, and it's uh, uh, it, it appeals to a small segment of people who are you know desperately need it to live, and he obtains a monopoly. He jacks up the price five thousand percent overnight, and it holds the system hostage. If you are a hospital or an insurance company or a pharmacy benefit manager, what are you supposed to do? Say no? <laughs> and that would be killing people. So they can't, they don't. They they knuckle under and, and pay in situations like that. And that's the thing that gets people so upset. Um, technically, it may be legal, uh, but um, it's it's not right. Um, yeah. And, and so... Uh, now there's that kind of excess. There's another kind too, where you know the the more mainline pharmaceutical companies they have their kind of cash cows that have been on the market for ten or sometimes twenty years. The patent may have even expired, and they found some other way to extend the patent, and they keep jacking up the price, you know, ten percent every six months. So pretty soon, you know, this drug that caught may have cost twenty thousand um, dollars, you know, fifteen years ago, it costs a hundred thousand. <laughs> 
Yeah. And people wonder, they look around and say, well, wait a minute. Huh? Same drug makes the same uh, difference for these patients. And why are we paying five times as much? You know, so there's that. So I'm, I don't excuse those things. I take the industry to task um, for these kind of abuses um, on my newsletter um, and, and Twitter and elsewhere, too. Yeah. Um, but but all that said, all that said, I think there are a lot of really good therapies coming along that do warrant a high price. So I made a reference earlier to cystic fibrosis. Um, here's a, a an area where you know you're making a life altering difference for a small group of people. There was a whole lot of research and development that went into that for ten or fifteen years, um, and you know it raises all kinds of questions about how much is a human life worth. I mean, if you can, if you can, uh, that's what it really comes down to. If you're going to extend CF patients lifespan from, say, 40 to 55 or 60 and they're living quality lives, you know, they're productive members of society, holding down a job and paying taxes and all that kind of stuff and raising families and being happy. I mean, Wow, it's a tough job to put a price on that. I mean, I I just I often ask myself, you know, as a taxpayer, as a insurance rate premium payer, how do I feel about a a company charging, say, three hundred thousand dollars for a drug like that? I mean, it's a lot of money, but it also delivers a whole lot of benefit. And, and the, the value is the watchword. You, you hear, you know, in some of the more wonky debates uh, in, on drug pricing, that question comes up a lot. Like, how do we define value? And that is the conversation that needs to occur between the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies. Figure out, like, how much are we really willing to pay for right. these things? Yeah, I mean, I guess the economist's answer would probably be the price because the price is what someone's willing to pay for it and and the market bears it. I guess it's different in this case because, uh, you know, by definition with the patent, you have a monopoly. And so the price is you could pull a Martin Shkreli or you could price it a little bit lower or you could make it just dirt cheap if you wanted to, I guess, but it's kind of up to the people who developed it. And so the traditional kind of market mechanism for setting a price where you've got a lot of providers and it kind of, that that's... Uh, missing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, not only does the uh, the company that discovers this drug have a monopoly, and often for a good long time until fast followers come along, that can be years. Yeah. Um, or generics, you know, they can take many years before they come along. Partly, sometimes because of the technical complexity. Um, you know, we we haven't even talked about like cell therapies, like I mentioned earlier. I mean, nobody has really figured out how to make cheaper generics of those kind of cell therapies. So hmm. that that's that's a question for twenty, thirty years down the road. But uh, you know, not only do, does the the provider have the monopoly, but the end user, the consumer, you and me, we're not uh, paying for this really out of our pocket. You know, that's somebody else who's paying right. for the drug. It's it's our insurance company. And so it <laughs> and the insurance company often just is not really empowered to say, no, we won't pay for this. Right. Um, they, they, they can in cases where they have legitimate 
alternatives. So we, we've actually seen this with hepatitis C. I don't know if you remember the controversy around the hepatitis C drugs that came out about five years ago. Uh, they came out for $1,000 a pill. That was the headline, outrage headline. Gilead Sciences came out with this drug. It was curing about 95% of patients with hepatitis C. Hmm. A huge, huge advance. Um, and it, it was $84,000 for a 12-week course, worked out to $1,000 a day. And uh, some of the insurance companies, push, uh, pharmacy benefit managers, they pushed back. This created some you know nasty headlines for the, the drug company, which was perceived as greedy. Uh, but very, very quickly, um, there in this case, there actually was real competition that came along from a couple of other companies, AbbVie and, and Merck, and I think Johnson & Johnson now, too. And... That has brought the price down very quickly to from something like eighty five thousand to uh, maybe thirty or forty. It, hmm. It's hard to get actual numbers because we don't have transparency, and that's another problem yeah. <laughs> here. Uh, you know, everybody, every insurance company cuts its own deal, and it's all secret. And you know, a lot, a lot of people recognize that's that's a problem that for a that's a dysfunctional market, right? Um, but um, it, you know that that there is a there, there are cases like this, and you don't hear as much. You don't hear that follow-up story that, okay, now we're curing 95% of hepatitis C patients for, say, $30,000, which, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, again, putting on my taxpayer and insurance rate premium payer uh, hat, I'd say that's, um, that's a pretty good deal. I, I think I, let's cure those people rather than wait for them to, uh, you know, get liver transplants, go to the hospital and, and spend $200,000 on liver transplants. Right. Yeah. It, that That's an interesting point that a lot of times uh, it's not just about, yes, you get a better quality of life, you get to live longer, but it saves you from having to do other costly treatments uh, down the road. That's right. Yeah. So within this whole world of like, you know, you've got the drug pricing issues, you have the science, you have the kind of commercial component where there's the kind of risk capital and innovation model. Uh, is there a particular part of it that you really focus on in your reporting or do you just cover it all? Well, I, I am just one guy, so I can't co I can't cover everything. Uh, I tend to focus more on the startups and the the venture capital. Uh, I, I am interested in that interface between academic science and when it when it crosses over into the private sector and becomes a company. There's mm. a whole lot of uh, conceptualizing that has to occur there. Uh, I find it interesting, and there's not as much uh, coverage there in other media outlets. So it's, it's a good place for me to spend my energy. Yeah. How did you originally find that focus? Uh, well, this kind of goes back farther in my career. Um, there was about 10 years ago, I took a job at Bloomberg News uh, and covered biotech for them. And so, you know, Bloomberg, it's this uh, global financial news powerhouse and uh, focused on uh, a lot of big fund managers at the time was its main audience. So they were interested in what moves stocks. And I was in San Francisco, and I would cover the big publicly traded companies like Genentech right. at the time, Gilead Sciences, Amgen, and primarily would write about, say, the phase three clinical trial, which is the most definitive experiment that a company runs. It's 
costs a lot of money and it enrolls, uh, you know, a thousand patients or more in many cases. And it's the one that provides the, the definitive evidence that they will need to take a drug application to the FDA and start selling it. So that's the kind of thing that would move somebody's stock in a big positive or negative way, depending mm. on the outcome. And so I wrote about that stuff. But really, once a drug gets to that far down the road, um, not a lot of it. I mean, the innovation occurred <laughs> like 10 years ago. Right. Uh, that, that, that's not the really innovative part of the business. Uh, and I kind of miss that. Um, that's what occurs at all these little private companies that you've never heard of. They're, they're the ones doing the innovation that, you know, will, will end up in that big phase three trial you know, 10 years from now. So I went back to, uh, and joined a, a startup online media company called Xconomy. This was about 10 years ago, 2008. And, uh, the, the whole mission there was to write about innovation, um, in um, targeted geographies that were kind of hubs of innovation. So it started in Boston. Um, I was I moved to Seattle to co-found um, the bureau in Seattle, and we and it started on some of these underserved hubs because you know in the Bay Area there's you know tons of innovation going on, but it was already being pretty well covered um, by by existing outlets. And so we went around to um, cover a lot of un, underrepresented. Uh, companies. I found that really interesting and satisfying. And, and basically, you know, to this day with my newsletter, um, I, I, I found that to be a, a good niche. Yeah. Were there any early companies when you kind of first shifted your focus away from the big public companies and more towards the early stage where you kind of realized how much more you liked it? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, so when I was at Xconomy, uh, my lens on the world was mostly what's innovative. So innovation can occur in big companies and medium-sized companies and little companies, but um, you have to look for it. It may not be the headline story, the big story at Amgen, like I say, is usually going to be that phase three trial. That's the thing right. the stock market's most interested in. But Amgen might have, you know, some little thing going off in the corner <laughs> in its R&D team that people aren't really talking about much, but maybe they've got some interesting spin on CRISPR going on right now. Um, maybe I can go talk to a scientist over there and, and talk to him or her about that, you know, and almost by definition, that's going to be an exclusive piece of content for me. And, um, it's not going to be read or, or, or not going to be of interest by the largest audience possible. But if you are in the business and you're interested in CRISPR, that could be <laughs> like hugely valuable. Yeah. So, so that's kind of, um, how I found my, my place. I, I followed my, my nose for stories and I found that often what it led me to were stories that were not necessarily the most popular, but they were super valuable to segments of the readership. And, you know, I, I can actually, you know, make a decent business off of being really valuable to a small group of people. Yeah. And how did you, so at Xconomy, was it a subscription model or was it an ad-based model or both, I guess? No, it, it was um, ad-based. Um, it also had events 
so, and you see this at a lot of media companies now turning to events that are sponsored um, and ha- and provide and have ticket sales. Um, so that's the community convening aspect of the media that they tapped into there. Um, but um, yeah, I. This was something that I came to realize later on. I thought, you know, I'm I'm writing a lot of these stories that are um, very valuable to people, and I'm I'm giving them away for free. And uh, writing more and more of them isn't really going to, uh, you know, help (laughs) uh, benefit me or my company. Um, You know, there there has to be some other model. here and that's how I ended up coming to uh, the subscription model. Did you? Were there any examples of other similar publications following the model that kind of inspired you? Um, th- there was the information uh, in Silicon Valley at, at the time uh, when I. So I, I actually took a, a leave of absence from Xcon. Well, I, I left Xconomy in 2014 and gave myself a leave of absence, essentially, to finish up a book project that I was mm. working on. But while I was working on the book, I was thinking about you know, what my model might be. Um, could I do a subscription model? I thought about that very early on. Uh, maybe I'll go work for a big media company if I didn't think it was going to work out. Um, but So when I was looking around, uh, I don't know if you remember Andrew Sullivan. Yeah, um, Daily was a Dish. Prominent yeah, a uh, conservative uh, political blog. Um, he had built a pretty good sized audience, and I believe he was charging something small, like $25 a year or $50 a year. I can't remember. But um, the information had come out of Silicon Valley, and they were focused on tech, and they were more like several hundred dollars, maybe $300 a year. But they had a a small staff of reporters. They had a little bit of venture capital funding to get started so they could hire some reporters and pay some salaries. Um, I I looked at both of these and thought, you know, there's, uh, they're at least showing that people are willing to pay for quality differentiated content in their own niches. And uh, I have my niche in biotech, so why not give it a shot? Yeah. And did you like how did how did you get it started? Because I'm did you take any sort of venture capital or anything like that? No. Yeah. No. So how, I, how I did, paid for it out of my own savings. Gotcha. I mean, that was probably a pretty big risk because going direct to your readers and asking them for money. I mean, it's something that some people had done. Like you said, you could see some models, but um, you know, it's it must have been a little a little uh, nerve wracking. <laughs> Oh sure, like any new uh, new company, uh, yeah. I was betting on myself. Um, I had something like maybe fourteen thousand followers on Twitter at the time, and maybe five or six thousand connections on LinkedIn that I had accumulated through the years. I had a lot of email addresses, um, and uh, I I took the plunge and. Uh, I set the original price at $99 a year and basically asked readers to make a leap of faith that uh, you you know my work. I, at that point, I had maybe six years worth of uh, experience at Xconomy and uh, a lot of articles out there on the free web. Yeah. Uh, so I did have a track record. A lot of readers knew my writing and my style and liked it. 
Uh, but you never know how many of them are going to pay until you run the experiment. And that requires, you know, digging into my savings, spending money on a web developer and a lawyer and all this kind of stuff to start your company. Uh, and then, and then doing it. And the good thing was, I mean, it was very encouraging early on. Uh, I got something like 300 subscribers in the first month, month and a half. So that told me that I wasn't crazy. I think there, uh, th- there's, a, there's a good chance that I can make this into a sustainable platform. Yeah. And how did you decide like what to price it and what to put in front of the paywall and what to put behind the paywall? Walk me through your kind of process for kind of setting up your basic model. Yeah, so I, I wanted to focus on um, original stories behind the paywall uh, of high value, uh, but I recognized that I couldn't just put everything behind there uh, and expect people to just you know see an interesting headline and and then pay to to become a regular subscriber. So I I actually started with a freelance affiliation with Forbes. So you know Forbes has this contributor network. Right, yeah. Um and so I, I set up a you know a deal with them. I'm I'm friends with one of the, the biotech staff writers there. He said, yeah, come on in, uh write five articles per month for Forbes. You get paid, you know, a modest amount of money for those articles. Uh and uh uh, you know, every time I write one on the so-called free web, it's not really free. We can talk about that later if you want. But you write on a free site like Forbes. I would be identified there as the founder and editor of Timmerman Report. There would be a link there in my bio and in a tagline at the end of every article that says, you know, for more articles like this or more in-depth articles, you can go to Timmerman Report. Um, it was totally fine for me to reference my um, paywalled articles. So gotcha. it, let's say I would write an ar- I would write a new piece of news for Forbes about um, a company doing cancer immunotherapy, and I would give you a real story that's uh, meaty and 800 words, say. Uh, but it was totally okay to have links in there that would say, you know, for more, you know, an in-depth analysis of like 50 companies in cancer immunotherapy, right. go to Timmerman Report. Subscription required. That was all. That was a form of advertising, you could say, that I was um, I was using even while I was kind of working for yeah. Forbes, um, and you know I think it had some success. Pretty limited though. I, oh I, yeah. I, I, st- I yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, it, the, consumer psychology is is a tough thing with uh, with these paywalled. Um, sites. Uh, you know, I, I get a lot of people who would read my Forbes articles and say, gee, Luke, I really liked that article you did about cancer immunotherapy. Can you tell me when your next free article on Forbes is coming? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I look at this and think, well, well gee, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that you would um, subscribe to my newsletter because there will be more and better articles. But that that's just a non-starter for so many people. Yeah. Um, so I sort of, I, I felt like I kind of worked through um uh, a queue of let's call them the persuadables <laughs> right people people for whom um paid content is a possibility um if it's really high quality and it lines up with their their business their professional interests um but everybody else that's just kind of i don't know 
cruising the web, I'm not really interested in I'm never going to win them over to become a $100 a year subscriber or $150 a year subscriber. It's just not going to happen. So I shouldn't really spend a whole lot of time and energy trying to persuade them. Yeah. Are there any places where you have learned it is a good use of putting your time and energy to find those people that are more likely to you know, become paying subscribers? You know, I find that uh, it's a hard question. Like, where do people come from to... Um, eventually subscribe um i think people need multiple touch points with uh an author before they're willing to take that plunge and invest in me uh they're going to spend 150 dollars of their hard-earned money per year to read my stuff they they need to see some of the things i tweet about they need to see some of my forbes articles maybe they've heard my podcast a few times all on the so-called free web or maybe they've even seen me appear at a conference where i moderate a conversation with crispr drug developers say and then it all like all these things accumulate in the consumer's mind and they say yeah you know what um i will uh i can pay i can put this on my company expense account it's not that much money um and and i'll get good stuff yeah I'm curious. This is, so I've got a bite now. This is the second time you've said so-called free web, and I'm very curious to hear uh, what you mean by that. Well, okay. I think Silicon Valley has convinced people that there's this thing called free content, and information wants to be free. It should be free. But what people don't really recognize is that you're forking over a whole lot of your customer data, and you are also sacrificing a lot of your time. So, um, not to pick on Forbes, I love Forbes, you know, <laughs> I used to write for them. But, you know, they have this user experience where you are forced to look at an advertisement for three seconds before you can uh, get to the story you want to read. Now, that might not sound like much, but that's a lot of speed bumps over a year's time. I mean, how many articles are you going to read there or elsewhere where you got pop-up video coming at you and all these things? Sometimes, you know, you go to, you know, television sites, for instance, they make you sit through a 30-second ad, right. a, pop-up, a pop-up video before you can even get to the thing that you want to read. Well, that, in effect, is a form of payment. You are paying with your time and attention and your data. Now, you might still think it's free, but I think that's just a different kind of business model. Yeah. And, and, and if you, uh, so if you subscribe to my publication at $149 a year, there are no advertisements. There are no pop-up videos. There are no speed bumps at all. I'm not taking any of your time. I'm not taking any of your data. I'm not selling it to Facebook or Google. It's not how my business works. Um, and I don't get, I don't think people give me, I don't think they give paywalled publications credit for that kind of thing. Right. They, 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 they just see paywalled publications as kind of the, the big bad wolf. Like you're asking for money. Wait, well, I, I should be get, able to get everything for free. Well, that's not really, uh, it's not a black and white thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm curious also if you think it changes um, what you write about. Like if you had an ad-based model, do you think you'd need to create differently? It's a very good question. The advertising-based model 
does influence the kind of content you create. And I think people are wising up to this now. Uh, so you've heard of clickbait. Uh, you, you also look at the volume, the sheer volume of articles that come out. I, I remember once uh, you know, the Huffington Post, you know, this uh, mid-2000s vanguard of so-called free content. At some point, they were publishing maybe 2,500 articles a day. Yeah. <laughs> the, New York, the, the New York Times publishes 300 articles a day. Uh, on their website. This came out from a New York Times uh, digital innovation report from a couple of years ago. Now, nobody can read 300 articles a day. Uh, not even the editors at the New York Times can read the whole thing front to back. Uh, so why is, why is the Huffington Post publishing 2,400 articles a day? It's insane. That's to meet these you know, incredible traffic and volume-based goals. Get the largest number of eyeballs. So, And now most of that, I'd say, and this is interesting, if you look at the content, 90% of it that comes out on free sites is you know, just like a celebrity op-ed or something or a clickbait kind of thing. It's not even news. It's, uh, it's designed to aggregate eyeballs. It's kind right. of a waste of time. It shouldn't, shouldn't be published at all. And then there's maybe 10% of the stuff at the Huffington Post or elsewhere that's produced by professional journalists that's actually really pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, I would argue shouldn't be given away for free. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the ad model just doesn't really reward the quality. Like that big, you know, expose on the solvency of Social Security is really important and valuable, but it's not going to get as mo- many views and it's not going to serve your advertising interests the same way that a cat video is. Right. Totally. <laughs> so, totally. So I, I, to me, the subscription model coming back to this it rewards quality the only way i'm going to win over a new reader is with quality i can't put a cat video up behind a paywall and then expect someone to pay 149 dollars a year for that they right. can get that on on the so-called free web but if i deliver them something that you know is the kind of thing that could give them a new investment idea or maybe find a new job that's uh valuable yeah no, definitely. And what would you say? There's probably some that would make the argument that uh, it's really important that everyone in a democracy has access to good information. And if all the high quality stuff goes behind a paywall, then only the people who can afford to spend that kind of money on that um, will be able to have access to it. It's a great point. Um, I come, I didn't mention this, but I, I come up from classic newspaper training um, at uh, the Capital Times in Madison, Wisconsin, and then the Seattle Times. Uh, and there's a real important role for local newspapers in our democracy in, in keeping citizens informed about their local governments. And it's a real tragedy to see these local newspapers, which have such a tradition of um, being rooted in their communities and doing a lot of good watchdog reporting, to see their business models collapse and and they're, str- they're struggling to find a new way forward. I, I think <sighs> paywalls have a place. I think low-priced subscriptions are important here. Um, 
to provide some sustainability for local media operations. I also think there's a role here for nonprofits, uh, foundations getting involved in supporting their local media. I, I think it has to be a combination uh, of philanthropy and um, citizens themselves being willing to pay a small amount of money yeah. to to maintain the access. Um, it, I, it's sort of like, and I don't know what that is. Is it $5 a month? Is it, Somebody needs to, uh, to run that experiment over a long period of time. I, I mean, I think, you know, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, their paywalls are working out pretty well. But, and that's important. We need those kind of organizations to be strong and able to, uh, to do um, fearless fact-based inquiry. Uh, but we also need that at the local level, and yeah. uh, people people have got to have got to support their local newspapers. It's very Definitely. important. I'm curious. Before we end, I, I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you some about uh, what advice you might give to someone who maybe is in a similar position as you were you know, five or 10 years ago where, um, you know, they're a professional writer, they have an audience, but, uh, and they're interested in this kind of model that you do, but, um, they don't necessarily have a huge email list and, you know, maybe in the kind of 10, 20,000 Twitter follower range. What do you think are the things that they should focus on? Yeah, I've occasionally talked with people who have this idea for their niche. Um, I think it's important to really know your audience, really know them at a deep level. Um, And maybe it helps just to even have an archetypical reader in mind. Like, Mm. you know, maybe you you had coffee with a reader and talked with that person for an hour (laughs) Um, and more than once about the kind of content they consume and where they see value and uh and then focus on that let that uh that kind of reader be your north star uh i i have a few people that i can think of now that are entrepreneurs that are venture capitalists people that live in this early stage biotech world that i focus on and and i talk to them a lot regularly about whatever is on their mind. It's not necessarily market research, um, but it kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's a way for me to stay in touch with my niche readers. And I think that c- if you cover the local sports team, uh, it's, it's sort of like not just the players or the coaches. Of course, they're reading your stuff and, and have views on whether they like it or not. But it's it's sort of like that that avid fan that got the season ticket holder, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. Uh, what really um, rocks his world? Like yeah. he, maybe maybe he read some article about you know changes in pitch velocity (laughs) you know over from between now and a few years ago or the role of bullpens today and it's like data driven and it's just like wow uh that's something you can't just get on mlb.com right but it changes the way you look at the game totally do you have any like things you look for where it would help you decide if someone had a well-defined audience or not 
I, I think big media has struggled um, with trying to be all things to all people. And that gets, it just gets really amorphous in the minds of the editors and the reporters. You ask them, well, who's, who's your audience for this story? And it's like, well, you know, everybody. It's, it's trying to reach the broadest audience possible. Okay, that is a reflection of, you know, our 100-year history, our reliance on the advertising-based business model. Because advertisers, you know, if you're trying to sell Coca-Cola or Toyotas or, you know, uh, your, your local retail outlet, they want to reach the broadest number of people possible. And there are certain kinds of content that are good at reaching truly the masses. But if you are going to go with a subscription model, you, you, you cannot, you, you have to be more precise in thinking specifically about who it is that's going to read this and how does this, uh, what does this mean to them? How valuable is it to them? I'll give you an example. So I, I've heard uh, repeatedly from uh, graduate students and postdocs at academic research centers. Now, this kind of surprised me, but they, they find a lot of value in my writing, speaking, etc. cetera. Uh, it's the kind of thing that helps them th- understand the industry in a way that they don't learn in graduate school and that helps them prepare for a career in the industry. Yeah. So it's like the different it's like the difference between sh- being like a PhD molecular biologist, hey, I'm a hot shot straight out of Harvard, walking into a job interview at Merck and sounding stupid. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe 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 you're good. You you I'm I'm sure you've got some published literature and you know, you've you've done some good of science and a recommendation but you you can't speak the language. That guy interviewing you just like talked about that thing that won FDA approval last week in your field and you know nothing about it, right? right. You, you look dumb. And and if you but if you are reading um sophisticated day-to-day industry analysis, you you don't skip a beat. You nail the interview. You get the job. Now, all of a sudden, that content that you've been paying a small amount of money for for the past year, that's valuable. That's, that changes your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, you know, with a little bit of uh, hard thinking about different niches. So, I mean, this can work in biotech. I'm pretty privileged. I I write for an audience of people who are highly educated. They make good salaries. They can afford to pay $100 or $150 a year, by and large. So, you kind of have to start there. Um, That's not true for all niches. But um, I think it behooves the editors, the reporters, the photographers, everybody in a media organization to really think about um, what kind of uh, value can we provide for specific readers? Yeah. Well, that's great advice. I think that's a good note to close on. Provide value for specific readers. That's good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Nathan. Great questions. And where can people find you online? Oh, sure. They can go to TimmermanReport.com. All right. LukeTimmermanReport.com. Luke Timmerman, thank you. Thanks, Nathan. <laughs>